we are afraid of making mistakes. And the idea that like, look, I see in you what I see in myself as a Mormon, what I see in all the other good LDS and Mormon people I know, which is love. Like we all got here to this religion and what keeps so many of us in is just love. Like these are amazing communities in which to learn how to love one another, like really. And the idea that we have not lived up to our ideals, it's painful. But it's like being in a family, right? You get older and you're like, okay, my family. I thought it was hunky-dory, but uh, now I can see I had a couple uncles who were this and my cousin kind of this, and I'm kind of like this, oh crud. But that doesn't mean you stop. It means you lean into those lessons and you love more. And the pivotal shift is, is Mormonism beautiful because it's perfect? Or is it beautiful because we keep working at it? Welcome, everybody, to the Cultural Hall. If this is your first episode, I want to let you know a little bit about us. We have been around since 2011, uh, publishing episodes like the one you are about to hear. We talk about all things around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, we have a great time doing it. Every week on Monday, we publish an episode that we call Articles of News. It's ripped from the headlines, talk about stories that involve members of the church or involve the church in general and we break those down. Those episodes are about an hour, and then every Friday, publishing in the middle of the night, there in your inbox for your podcatcher, when you wake up that morning, uh, we do an interview episode. We do uh, very light topics, right? Maybe uh, Mormons of note, significant people, celebrities even. Uh, We do various book authors, and then sometimes we have very serious conversations. Obviously, today is going to be one of those serious conversations. I'm excited to be able to uh, be joined by a great friend of mine to talk about a very serious topic. Uh, It's sort of the merge of an Articles of News and an interview episode, certainly with everything that's going on uh, in the headlines today. This is one of the the harder episodes that I've had to do in in a while, and I say have to do intentionally because it's important that we talk about it. It's important that we have more conversations. Um, And it's important that you let me know what you think. Maybe you disagree wholeheartedly uh, with what is said in this episode. We would love to hear from you. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. And if you would like, there is a Facebook group that is strictly for people who listen to each episode, who love each episode. You can find that. It's at the Cultural Hall back row. You can certainly just find us at the Cultural Hall anywhere on social media. Let's get to it. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. Now, here's the deal. Joanna Brooks is my guest, and we're going to talk a lot about race today. This is going to be maybe a supercharged episode. Uh, So we're not going to spend a lot of time getting to know Joanna Brooks because we already did that. You lifers of The Cultural Hall will remember that Joanna was here back on episode 27. That tells you that it's been almost a decade since we've chatted, uh, Joanna, but uh, here's the deal. I, I am excited to talk to you. Um, I'm flattered that you uh, that you put a new coat of paint on the garage where you're talking to me from. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell me briefly, obviously we're going to get into the book and all the topics of the book, but what in the last decade has been going on for you? Yeah, no, uh, mostly I've been missing you. Oh. That's just the, yeah, I love the cultural hall. Um, as I said, uh, you give me hope. I love that. I love, Richie, you're awesome. Oh, thank um, you. Me, 
Um, I was working my professor job for a while and then I went up the food chain. And so now I'm an associate vice president over all the faculty at San Diego State University, which means I help engineers and dancers and chemists and English professors and accountancy professors have their best careers, which is a job I really value and really like. And my people are working super hard right now trying to take an entire university online, which they did on the, they turned on a dime for spring and they're going to do it again for fall. Um, I got my, I, you know, I had two kids back when I talked to you last. They are now 14 and 16. Nice. They they're still wild. around. That's good. Some people they're get alive. rid of, some people get rid of them. <laughs> and I, I place no judgment on that behavior, but you've decided to keep yours. That's great. I, I kept them. I continue to feed them. So they are, they are, they are excellent. Their names are Ella and Rosa. And, um, and I've been writing on various projects, you know, did some collaborative books on Mormon feminism along the way. And a couple other things, there was a project called Saving Alex which was about um, a Mormon girl who survived um, conversion therapy. Mm. She was on her way to conversion therapy in Southern Utah. That actually became a, a movie on Lifetime of all places. <laughs> so you can check that out. So I've had projects going on the side too. And I've been more and more doing um, some um, work with refugees. Like I know a lot of folks in Utah have. We've been doing them down here in San Diego. Folks who are stuck in these detention centers, um, helping mm. them out. Mm. So mm. Um, just trying to live, um, live my talk. So, oh. so that's essentially about ten episodes that you have queued up. If we wanted to take, <laughs> if we wanted to take the sideline on any of those things, it's like Mormon phys- feminism, right? And where it yep. is today, we could talk for an hour plus on that, or we could talk about the refugee situation. We could talk about that. I think we could even probably go an hour to, uh, you know, whether or not universities and and colleges will be back. Oh. On campus in the fall, San Diego State is not doing that. Is is no, what I'm understanding. System wide, so Cal State is the largest public university system in the country. We have 500,000 students. Oh my gosh! Good of our state, we you know the leadership of the system said we're we're not gonna we're not doing a conventional fall. There will be some a very small number of classes that will convene face to face things. You got to do like labs, but we've been ordering PPE and getting everybody ready. It's um it's a big lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to say the very least, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you've got a book coming out in all of this. Poor timing, Joanna. Poor timing I, on this I, book. I know, but you know, but no time like a plague to do a deep inward reflection on a really tough subject, right? Yeah, and let me be very clear. It's, it's an absolutely appropriate time for the subject matter. I was speaking only about a difficult time to be able to release a book where you can't do a book tour, you can't do speaking engagements and all these typical things that you would do. I mean, all that is probably moved online. Certainly this being the first of your yeah. conversations about it. The very will first. Help. Woohoo! We love yeah, it. And, and I'm reaching out to a lot of folks in Mormon studies and saying, look, if you want to share a part of this book with your class, I'll Zoom with you. And hey, if you, if there's any anyone else who wants to Zoom, shoot me an email. My, my website is joannabrooks.org. So and I'm it, happy to talk it through because this is a heart project. This is a, this is a scholarly project, but this is a heart and soul project too. And it matters to me that I support anyone who wants to work through these ideas together. Uh, it's worth noting that if there are other authors who have written books that they would love to come into the cultural hall, you can always email us contact at the cultural hall.com. Our uh, guest last week was Taylor Petrie, uh, who's oh, he's written so good. an amazing book called Tabernacles of Clay. If you guys haven't listened to that episode yet, you should go back and listen to it uh, because we were the first for him as we are for you. The name of your book is Mormonism and White Supremacy. I only say that to set up the topic. I'm sure you know the title of your book. Let me point out a very obvious thing about this, that that if I'm being com- completely transparent, that makes me a little uneasy 
is you are a white woman and I am a white man and we're about to talk about Mormonism and white supremacy. Correct. And, you know, this is an issue we all have to cross over to. In our faith tradition, okay, so who, whose responsibility is white supremacy? I, I can think of plenty of jokes right now. But, but I mean, that would be that would be white people's responsibility. Right, exactly, right? exactly. And so we can't fix this only in conversation with ourselves. Right. We need to study up on all the things people of color who know way more about this subject and who came before us in doing this work have done. We have to study all of that. We have to listen. But when it comes down to it, only you and I can do this work. Mm-hmm. Only you and I can fix our hearts and souls or hold each other accountable in this way. And so in, I hope in the book, I show all the respect for the many, many, many teachers of color I've had and people who've held me accountable. But at the same time, it's like, hey, I got to I, I, I to do this work. They're tired. They got their own lives to save. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's an interesting thing, too, because even just to have this conversation within the walls of the church or within the cultural history that we have, we sort of say, oh, you know, the the thing that is automatically coming to most people's minds, I think, is blacks in the priesthood, right? And we go, right. it's in the past. Don't talk about it. Yeah, And I move know. along. And that's, I mean, that, that's, that's not it. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's the work we got to do, right? Because that wasn't just like a blip or an accident. It was part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. It was part of bigger patterns in our faith that, we need to look at and see if they are right, trustworthy, if they bear good fruit, if they're of good report, lovely, you know, like give them the 13th article of faith (laughs) to all the things, right. To all the things. And if we can do that with our own business and give it, give it a review, um, that, that I think that's the work ahead. And mind you, like, you're right. These conversations we really haven't had in this way in a Mormon space among white Mormons, but there are people in universities who have these conversations all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a whole field on understanding race and ethnicity and the way race was invented. There's whole fields of discourse and experts that talk about it all day long and a lot of us who teach it. So you know, just to put it in context, this has been on my mind for like as a thing I needed to work out for myself. Oh, since I was 22, at least, if not younger, 18, 19. And I've been reading and studying ever since then, and I'm now 48. Hmm. So I, this is a long project for all of us. It's a long road. Give, give me an idea of what that was like. So if you're, you know, 18, 19, 22, that is post, uh, like, restoration of post priesthood. Post ban, right? Yeah, post ban. So what was it that was so, I mean, obviously the whole thing is unsettling, but what specifically right. was unsettling to you that you're like, I got to get more on this? Right. So, um, you know, like, Along the way, uh, like when I was a teenager, it was just embarrassing. Right? I grew up in Southern California, right? And we were a minority and, you know, and my, Mormons are a minority in California. And to have to explain or to just like, it just was kind of a cringy thing for me. And I went to BYU um, and I started to learn from people who knew the history of our faith differently. Like I didn't grow up in a dialogue household. I didn't grow up in a, my dad was like bishop three times. We were super, super straight ahead conservative Mormons. But I met Eugenie England and I met other people and they started to sort of lift, um, offer a different perspective on things. Like my freshman orientation, my first sit down in freshman orientation, I was in a small room in the basement of the JKHB with Eugene England. And the very first thing he did at freshman orientation was walk in and write on the board the verse from Second Nephi that says, all are like unto God. That was his hello. Hmm. 
and and the relief of that seeing someone who i knew was to be respected saying maybe this really cringy thing is not all of who we are when it really hit for me was when i became a grad student at ucla and i was in the most diverse learning community i'd ever been in thank goodness and I was assigned one summer to teach one of those freshman summer courses, those bridges where they take sort of underrepresented kids and they bring them to campus six weeks cool. early so they can get a feel for the place. And for the first time in my life, I was a teacher in front of African-American people. Hmm. And I remember one day uh, when we were talking about privilege and talking about, you know, equality, I looked out at them and I felt like I needed to confess that I was Mormon and I started crying. Hmm. And, and they just started looking at me like, why is weird white lady teacher crying in front of us? And like, <laughs> these kids don't, a lot of them didn't even know about Mormons. They had no idea what it meant. They had no idea. But I realized I was carrying a burden on my heart, a burden of embarrassment, of shame, of wanting things to have been different. Love, 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 love for my beautiful, beautiful faith, but also some weird shame. And that's when I knew I had to understand it better. And I had to work, start working at it. So let's unpack a little bit of the shame, because I think some people listening to this would be like, listen, God said black people can't have the priesthood. And then he said that they could. And 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 what are you so ashamed about, Joanna? Well, you know, um, I didn't like admitting it's at some point the stories we told ourselves started just ringing false to me. You know, and the more I dug into them like this, you know, all of the old stories about the war in heaven, like. I realized there's no scripture there. Like these were stories and stories, even people I love, my parents were good, good people. My mom's still alive, would tell me these stories and they were just kind of head scratchers. They were just kind of head scratchers. Like, wait a minute, Cain and this a flood and then there's, and what? And the more and more the explanations, I held them in my hands and looked at them I did, they just didn't make sense. And then when I tried to say them out loud to actual African-American people, I just found myself wanting, like, they didn't make sense and they didn't hold up and they were nothing I felt proud saying in public. And I don't think that happens if you're only among white Mormons, mm. right? If you're only among my, more Mormons, everyone's like, all right, yeah, that's just the way it is. And there's a story and oh, sure. And next thing, let's mm -hmm. go now do the important service project, which is great. But when you actually sit with the reality of people that you care about, who are your friends or your neighbors or your, in my case, my students, and you have to tell yourself or them those stories, it, I, that's where my shame came. Hmm. I like, this just does, this doesn't make sense. This can't be. It's worth clarifying, too, at this point that, I mean, there uh, is the gospel topics essays that address a lot of yeah. the things that you're talking about. That essentially we come a long way. Yeah, that essentially say, yeah, uh, that wasn't ever a thing, at least right. officially from, you know, from Salt Lake Headquarters Church. But it was a thing I can remember. You know, I'm Utah born and raised. I can remember the explanation of, you know, why black people are black and and having this whole historical right. thing and, and just sort of accepting it because that was what was being told me by people that were older. And then. Yeah, repeating it or even thinking things out. If I took the second to think about it, I'd go, oh, no, 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 what? Wait, now, wait a what? 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 Yeah, I know. Exactly. And what motive did we have if we were in segregated or majority white communities to think about it? I mean, really, there's you have to have a really like 
strong sense of compassion or empathy or willingness to imagine. Like for me, I started reading a lot of African-American literature under Professor Gloria Cronin at BYU. Hmm. And when you start to come as just an you know, undergraduate English major, and when you start to enter into another person's world and understand the just a little bit more fully their experience, it gives you a powerful point of reference for your own. That's what literature does. One of the things literature does. So, you know, I was like, where in this world of dignified, brilliant people does my story make sense? It makes no sense at all, mm. the stories I was handed. And remember that Gospel Topics essay was 2013. Right. Oh, and and it, yeah, I was going to say, and anecdotally, you hear stories about people sharing them in their wards and people going, oh, we never said, you know, that that hasn't come out. Where did you get that? And they're like, on the, like, it's uh, on the, on the church's website. Right. You but you got to dig down in. It's yeah. got footnotes. It's not like over the pulpit. And no one has ever said, so we were wrong. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it, and to the point, I mean, going even one step further, and I think we're setting uh, a, a great table for, oh, man, this is terrible. So I hope that there is hope, hopefulness in this episode as well. But, yes, yes, I mean, yes. But even to the point that if you remember a couple of years ago now, there was that fake apology that was oh, made yeah. by the church, just a tasteless, uh, practical joke. That's... It was made by a practical joker, not by the church, right? So... Yeah, yeah, not by, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. I, if that was confusing. And that was, and that was some stupid white people business right there. Right, because because the, the <laughs> African-American <laughs> community connected to it were like, yes. Finally, this that thing was... that we have been looking for, weeping. You hear that? You know, you, I remember right. recounting things of uh, uh, various folks on online, just, just being like, "Oh, we love this. Thank you. Thank." Oh, it's not real, right? Because the work we have to do is not about setting the church up. The work we have to do is about changing a world in which it is lethal to be black. And until we can wrap our heads around the fact that this is the reality. For our brothers and sisters, Mormon and not, in the United States and beyond, until we can wrap our head around that fact, they live in a different world than we do. How can we be one people, one heart, one mind? How can't we? We got to do this work inside. But yeah, and just to the point of hope, like if you read this book, it's going to sound like scary and the sentences are very direct mm. and like they're very, it's hard hitting. My hobby is boxing. I'm not kidding. Like I hit things. But know that my voice is full of love. And it's full of love from my family and my community. And that love sometimes means you dig in and go hard. Yeah. You don't give up on people. Uh, I mean, even from the very title of it, it's like Mormonism and white supremacy. I went, all right, well, I, I know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> like there is, there, is, there is no like, yeah, oh, hey, maybe we'll, we'll meander to this subject. It is. Yeah, exactly. And so like. I want to clarify, too, at the top, something I say in the first page is so when I say or when we say white supremacy, mm -hmm. right, we often think of the people carrying the tiki torches at Charlottesville, right, right? or people who wear hoods um, or people who maybe even fly a Confederate flag, right? But that's just the tip of a big structure. That's the most extreme expression when people who study race for a living talk about white supremacy. What we mean is an entire system, a structure of ideas and laws and beliefs and practices and cultural tendencies that predate all of us. They've been hundreds of years in motion that we're born into. And this whole system and structure says, if you have lighter skin, 
you're more likely just by the fact of having whiter skin not to die so early. You're more likely just statistically for having lighter skin to have more wealth in your family, mm. not income wealth, the kind that's passed down from generation to generation. Like somebody had a house and they grandpa died and wealth passes down, right? Just by virtue of being born with lighter skin, you're less likely to be in prison. And how do we begin to explain those vast disparities? Are they all about individual character? Uh, no, there's a big structure, a big system that's like passing out life chances based on skin color. Mm. And none of us choose that. Like, I don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm always, I can't, but I participate knowingly and unknowingly in all sorts of institutions and cultural patterns that unless I'm really thoughtful about it, they just kind of go along with that normalcy, with that reality, right? So that's what I mean by white supremacy. It's the system of ideas, beliefs, practices, cultures, institutional power structures that give people with lighter skin better chances in life. And and when we come back in the second and the third block of the cultural hall, I want to get into some of those things, maybe those things that we knowingly do, but probably I think a a, a more powerful conversation is those things that we just frankly aren't aware of that attribute and contribute uh, to this, this idea, this, this, this function of, of white supremacy. So let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second and third blocks of the cultural hall. Hey, it's me, Ruchie T. I want to take a second and talk to you about best DJ in Utah, or I should really say right now, best guy who cleans out his carport and best guy who cleans out his storage unit and best guy who cleans out his carpenter studio and has done a lot of episodes of the cultural hall. Not a lot of DJing happening right now, as you can imagine with the quarantine, it is the socially responsible thing to do. But I will promise you this, I bring the party, as soon as this is lifted, as soon as these rainy clouds of self-quarantine are gone, I will bring the party. Now, you're going to have a work party, great. You're going to have a church party, I do the church parties too. You're going to have a wedding or special day, or maybe you just want to have a post-corona party. I would love to be that DJ for that party. You can hit me up, you can get a quote, simple and easy, at bestdjinutah.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now. Because at PC Laptops, we're here for you and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, you like this conversation, other conversations that we have, we would love your financial support. Let's be honest, things and life aren't free, uh, including the Zoom, which I'm able to talk with Joanna uh, over, which, uh, you know, it, it costs money. The microphone, which I'm speaking into, also costs money. We would love your financial support. You can go to patreon.com slash the cultural hall and uh, you can pledge a couple bucks there 
Love to have you be there. Become a Patreon Saint of the Cultural Hall. Allows you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. So in the first block, Joanna, we talked a little bit about the the priesthood ban and certainly that there are um, some things that we can be able to change moving forward. So my question, is this book more of a here is where we can see this within the church in its almost 200 year history? Or is it a here is what we need to do in order to better love our brothers and sisters moving forward or a combination of both? It's a combo. And and here's why. Like, it's important to understand how we got ourselves as LDS people, as people of the Mormon movement into this situation, right? We have to understand what were the values, what were the tough decisions or the instincts, good or bad, that created the situation we find ourselves in. How did the ban come into being? How was it supported? Um, how did it finally come apart? What has what, what did it leave behind that has not been cleaned up? Um, and what do we need to do to clean it up? That's all part of the same story for me. You know, my training is as a cultural historian. So mm-hmm. I like to understand how things work. Like I like to take apart the bike. Yeah. <laughs> but the bike is human. But the bike is human history. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. bike is Mormon yeah. history and it's our culture. So what are the things we do in our culture that still that make it difficult that make our chapels less friendly spaces for black and brown people? You know, what are the things we still do, the old habits of the ways we talk to each other that make it so difficult to have open conversations about our shortcomings? Like, for example, what makes it so difficult to say we're wrong? Like, why is that so we were wrong? See, and so that there's a whole story behind that. And it's a story of us being an outcast, persecuted minority. And then the way we responded to that experience by creating our own forms of control and domination in Utah territory and continuing those in our culture. Uh, that's not part of the gospel, but that has been a strong part of the church. Okay, so put a bookmark there. I want to ask a couple questions and I think we'll catch up to that. Uh, are there other incidences, maybe not as glaring, um, but within uh, this idea of white supremacy within the church, aside from the priesthood ban, not that we need more, certainly, but are there are there other kind of things? Sure. In, in- well, sure. So, you know, we see decisive, we see decisions in early Utah territory. So most folks who know the history of the ban believe that Brigham Young helped turn, turn the, you know, really turned us in that direction. Mm-hmm. He also supported uh, laws that permitted slaveholding in Utah, right? Right. And he did that very consciously. And he had a, a, a vision of Utah. He wanted Utah to not have a significant black population. And he put in place um, a territorial statutes that would ensure that that would be the outcome, right? And so, so, that. so if I'm so if I'm, so if I'm hearing you exactly, he put in statutes that would make it essentially unattractive for black yep. people to live in Utah. Right. Exactly. So it wasn't just the policy. The mm. policy was part of a, a theocratic vision. You know, um, if we go forward some years, um, we find church leaders who had who knew Elijah Abel, who had witnessed the documents he held that proved his ordination, changing their story to affirm around the time when priest, when uh, priesthood correlation became a thing, right? In the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. That, no, no, no. Black people never held the priesthood. And, 
and, and, and never should, right? So we see decisions all along the way around the priesthood, but remember too, the priesthood ban was always connected to also the exclusion of black women from temple ordinances, always. So there's that, but as, so Utah becomes fairly a very low black uh, population, um, some from the railroads, right? That's the historic community around Ogden, some from mining, but because of Brigham Young's decisions, it became a majority white state didn't have to be that way. California, mm -hmm. for example, had a large early African-American population, relatively large. And so then that empowers our, our religious faith leaders and institutional leaders in the middle of the 20th century to do all sorts of things politically in regards to the civil rights movement that we wouldn't be proud of today. Like we have, you know, well-regarded and named, um, uh, names that would be very familiar, you know, um, to people who listen to this podcast, church leaders who for example, insisted on the segregation of blood banks in Utah. Really? Racial segregation of blood banks. They supported, um, they supported statutes that um, made racial segregation in housing a fact. Um, there are letters between high-ranking church officials and presidents of Brigham Young University opposing desegregation of BYU. Um, and, you know, this is just this general mid-20th century Mormon culture that pivots towards you know, a very strong conservatism. And you have um, Ezra Taft Benson um, opposing the civil rights movement over the pulpit um, in general conference in the 1960s. So yeah, it wasn't just the ban, mm -hmm. but setting up a space in the Mormon corridor where we didn't have to be accountable to our black brothers and sisters meant that all sorts of things could grow up in that space, all sorts of ugly politics and exclusionary politics that uh, have gone uncorrected. Which, which is so astounding when we listen to this with our with our 21st century ears. We hear that and we go, oh my gosh, that's, that's important. Some of that w was just existent in culture in general, not specifically to Mormon culture, but just in right. general, those segregations of schools and blood banks and those things, those weren't uh, unique to the, the LDS church. Right. Right. However, and this is the part that it really struck me when it hit me. I, I kind of used to think Utah was like a Western Massachusetts. There weren't very many black people there just cause uh -huh. no, nah, it's in Northern Mississippi. Really? Yeah. Explain, explain what you mean to, uh, by that to folks. So well-intentioned, going to do the right thing, you know, just like we're just mostly white. Like we're good. We're just, there aren't just that many black folks, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, we were intentionally exclusive. And we practiced that by creating unwelcoming political spaces. And so, you know, Horace Greeley came to town in the 1850s, came to Salt Lake to take a look at Brigham Young. And he was a big Eastern journalist. And he remarked, I cannot believe that you guys are not talking about the abolition of slavery, like at all. The rest of the nation is consumed by this question. No one here is an abolitionist. And mind you, a majority of converts at that point were from England, which has abolished the slave trade in the 1780s and New England, which had a long, you know, New England and, and uh, New York state and sort of the upper Midwest, which had ostensibly been anti-slavery and, and no one in Utah was concerned about abolition. And you go forward and in 1852, the front page of the Deseret News on New Year's Day, Eliza R. Snow writes a poem called The New Year that's in the book, opposing abolition of slavery. Hmm. You know, and so it's not just that we were, hey, we're just doing our own thing and there happened not to be a lot of black people around. We were not interested in being a part of a community with black people in it. How, um, 
because because it's my understanding, and and if I'm incorrect uh, in the research that you've done, in, enlighten me. It seems like um, like Joseph Smith in his time was very progressive towards this. Uh, folks like Elijah Abel, probably the most popular that we know of. <laughs> uh, Jane Manning James, another person of color who in recent years has has been given. Um, you know the the very due attention to to their import in early church history, but to to me, I guess the narrative um, in my head that I've created is like Joseph Smith was like, yeah, 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 forward thinking, everyone equal, and then Joseph good, Brigham back, yeah, 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 right? yeah. Like, yeah like like Brigham, Brigham a little a little racist yeah. and fell to the social <laughs> pressures of the time. You know what I'm saying? Right. I I I think it will not surprise you if I say. Joseph was complicated uh-huh. and he wasn't a systematic thinker hmm. on race. Okay. Right? okay. He was kind of all over the place, like a charismatic prophet is. And Brigham was more the like, we're going to put the grid down and we're going to build all the cities on the grid. And so he institutionalized hmm. some of the emergent impulses. But really, the decisive moment we see it's in Missouri, right? It's in Missouri and the Saints are getting beat up, right? And Missouri also happens to be one of the most contested border states at the time. And there's an article that comes out in the 1830s um, in the Morning Evening Star where uh, basically uh, church leaders are saying, so if you're thinking about coming here to join us, just know Missouri isn't a great place for black people. Hmm. You know, so... Now, on the one hand, do we blame them? And do we say, um, you know, like, y'all should have known better. Y'all should have been more on point. Like, at no point up till then had freedom for Black people or human emancipation been, like, the center commitment of the church. Right. And so they're trying to survive. They're trying to survive. And they're like, the last thing we need is to give these Missouri ruffians any more reason to kill us. Right. So we're just going to kind of be soft on the welcoming Black people into the community. But you see, that's how it works. Before there's rules about you're not allowed, a place just becomes unfriendly, right? Mm. It just becomes less than actively committed to an ideal. And in the face of all the other pressures, then it recedes. And so in order to get safety and later in order to get acceptance and even build some institutional power, we chose self-preservation, we being white Mormons, over a radical embrace of black believers. Hmm. Which like some, some people may hear and be like, well, that was, that was what had to do, what had to occur in order for the church to, to continue to exist. And others who are just like, I think we could have gone a different way, especially when you imbue that, that God is behind all everything with the church, right? If you believe that, that God leads the church through the prophets, like why, why do all then these people need to to suffer? These generations of right. people just be like, yeah, not invited. We'll get around to we'll uh, get around. to when you can be. I mean, really, right? Am I no, am, am no, I wrong? Am no, I being flippant I about raised, it? I was raised. No, I was raised like that too. Right. So this brings us to the whole question of infallibility. Right. When did the idea that everything we did we did because God wanted it that way? When did that right. come into being? That was not a part of Mormon belief until after the um the polygamy announcement mm. right the idea that the prophet will never lead us astray look prophets were humans once upon a time right you like joseph you like brigham they were kind of 
I uh, sorry, I talk blue. They were jerks and they someone stole your goat. And like they was there was a familiarity, but as the church grows institutionally, right? The idea that we are infallible, we've always done things the way God wanted, we can see that setting in. And there's actually a chapter in my book at which I locate the moment that that becomes our story about blacks and the priesthood. And it's not until the 1940s. Hmm. Hmm. It's not until the 1940s that we say this is how it's always been because God has always wanted this way, despite the facts of history, right? So that time until the 1940s was it just a bunch of people going, yeah, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, basically, maybe, it was a bunch people. of people. Yeah, no, a bunch of people saying like, um, we like Utah, we got a thing going here, we like Idaho. Oh, there's not a lot of black people. Oh, I don't know why. Okay, next thing. Yeah, because they didn't and have to deal with it. They didn't have to face the reality of black people as friends and relatives and students and coworkers and fellow believers, right? Hmm. It wasn't black people were abstract. Black lives were abstract. This is not a very light subject, Joanna. But do you hear the I bet so but here, but let's do this. Let's do this for your listeners. Yeah. How much time do we have left in this block? Not to get all bossy on you, but oh, I no, we got we got seven, eight minutes. So here's the thing. I want this is the most important conversation, but we also have to address, this is the most important conversation is the hard one, is what I mean. Yeah, right? yeah. Hard, and, but we've gotten better in the last decade at having hard conversations as Mormon people and as LDS church members, right? Mm -hmm. But we're not all that good at it. No. So why, so can I ask you just as your friend and as someone who's known you for 10 years, like why, what, what feels hard right now? I, t to me, uh, I think the thing that is most difficult for me when I talk about anything that um, involves race is like, I feel like if people know me, they'll know that I, that I love everyone, right? That I just right. want everyone to feel loved, to feel accepted, to, to, you know, all the things. And I, I think the thing that is hard for me, one is like, I don't have a great explanation for this, Right. Like, I feel sort of like those people that for, I mean, depending on the math that we do, a hundred years went, yeah, we don't really know why, but I guess not. Exactly. Well, it doesn't affect me. I won't worry about it. I think that that's part of it. I don't have a really great answer. And then secondarily, like, I am so uh, afraid of saying something uh, wrong or, or, or insensitive from the perspective that I have yeah. because, because there have been times where I have said something that that I know that me I too. that I recognize oh my gosh that is that is terrible me today would never have said that thing of of 3 years ago of 10 years of 20 years ago and and, and I don't feel completely enlightened as far as this thing goes so I yeah. always am just like um I this I hope that this is yeah, a, yeah. a safe place you're scared yeah yeah quite frankly you're afraid yeah you're afraid and that's super normal right so we are afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. And the idea that like, look, I see in you what I see in myself as a Mormon, what I see in all the other good LDS and Mormon people I know, which is love. Mm -hmm. Like we all got here to this religion and what keeps so many of us in is just love. Like these are amazing communities in which to learn how to love one another. Like really. And the idea that we have not lived up to our ideals is painful. Yeah. It's painful. But it's like being in a family, right? You get older and you're like, okay, my family. I thought it was hunky-dory, but uh, <laughs> now I can see I had a couple uncles who were this and the, my cousin kind of this and I'm kind of like this. Oh, crud. But that doesn't mean you stop 
it means you lean into those lessons and you love more. Yeah. And the pivotal shift is, is Mormonism beautiful because it's perfect? Or is it beautiful because we keep working at it? Does God love us because we always had it right? Why did we feel like we always had to have it right? The Old Testament story is of Jewish people, you know, the nation of Israel screwing up and screwing up and screwing up and screwing up and screwing up. And the, the Old Testament understanding of God is the God that intervenes in innumerable screw-ups. Hmm. Why should our God be any different? Hmm. Maybe our history is not like we were right. And then we were even more right. And then we were even more right. Like the pressure of that is ridiculous. And yeah. it doesn't, and it's the pressure that comes when you have to defend your way of life against outsiders who want to kill you. Hmm. That's where that pressure comes from. What if, we, and then be, just because it feels good, just because you can't imagine any other way than always being right. What if we were able to offer ourselves the space and say, okay, we were wrong. We were wrong. And being part of something that was wrong doesn't make me bad. It doesn't make me a weird, bad Mormon doesn't make me I don't have to be ashamed I just have to be responsible just I, like being an American citizen like I'm an American citizen I was raised for a long time it's all good it's the tab we were great and the flag and freedom and then you go to school and you're like yeah no but the genocide slavery okay still working at the project yeah yeah that's that's the corner I hope we can turn and thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your fear with me and I hope that helps does that give you some relief yeah I, yeah some I don't feel like I'm very good at it so that that process of leaning into it and and really because being able new. to learn more yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent but that's I, okay I, I think there's another element of it that is that um is maybe why we cling to it and maybe I'll sort of cue it up and then we'll take a break and come back in the third block okay. is is that if I say, Something like, you know, we made mistakes or I don't really know, but I have to leave it in the I don't really know that I feel like that empowers people to be like, well, you don't know because it's not true because you're being lied to because your faith yeah. is a fraud because it's, you know, men wanting power over you. It's, you know, all of those things that anyone who has experienced someone who has either left the church or become disenchanted with the church will say yeah. all of those things. And and so it's easier on me to just be like, well, I don't know where it would be more, um, more responsible of me to, to, like you say, lean into those, into those, yeah. into well, those. We can feelings. talk about, we can talk about that crew in the third block. Cause that's a hard, that's a hard crew. And, um, and I'm willing to engage it pretty directly. All right, let's do it. We'll come back All and right, do then. that in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, as I mentioned earlier, if you ever need to get in contact with us, you can send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find us on any of the social medias that you may be using. We're at the Cultural Hall. We can't find a real great use for TikTok yet, so if you are a TikToker and you think, Man, the cultural hall should be on TikTok and you'll be, you know, smart with the brand of the cultural hall. You can reach out to us, contact at theculturalhall.com, because we should. I just don't get it. And uh, Joanna, let's get back into it. 
um, that's a little bit light to now jump really <laughs> deep and heavy. But, no, but this is the world we live. I have a 14-year-old who loves TikTok, and I research white supremacy. <laughs> you got to have balances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. It's both sides. It's both sides, yeah. whatever we do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like to me, there's a certain element of, you know, when we talk about that, that there are, you know, not great things or white supremacist things within the history of the church that um, and I use that term. And for whatever reason, my mind does draw up like the KKK. And that's not what we're saying. Um, Right. We're saying the whole structure that says. You get a golden ticket just because you don't have melanin. Right. I think I think it's worth noting that again. Um, mm-hmm. But if if I say, oh, yeah, it's mistakes, then I feel like that, it, you know, it it opens up the the tent and then people can be like, well, yeah, because none of it's true. And and right. Exactly. And, and all that. So I so I think if I'm being again, trying to to yeah. to open up this vulnerable part, yeah. I think that that's probably why I haven't uh, spent the time that. in this space to figure right. it out because I'm like, no, I really like, you know, my testimony. I like uh, reading the Book of Mormon and feeling inspired. I like my my church community. And there's there's some element that, you know, if, if it unravels, then it all unravels. And I don't think sure. that, that I don't think that that's true. I just no. I think that's probably why I have, um, you know, not embraced it the way that I, I probably could. Well, do you want to do you want to talk about that issue for a minute? Because I'm sure you're not alone, right? Sure. There's a lot. There's a lot of people who just love. They love our world. It mm-hmm. is a beautiful world that we built. It's a beautiful world. It, now it has some ugly aspects. Absolutely. So, look, it's been a lot of pressure to be a Mormon. Yeah. Right. And um, some people have reacted to the pressure by going hard in, hard out. Right. Yeah. Black and white, all or nothing. And so to admit one, and I think especially, I think especially about men who serve missions. Yeah. Right. Y'all were out there knocking doors day after day for years in places far from home when you couldn't call and email and all that, like, Mm -hmm. you know, letters, right. Twice a year. That was hard. And I think people carried away some soul wounds on all that. That's never been healed. And for them to then 20 years later in the middle of the night sitting at the internet say, shoot, the version I heard in seminary wasn't entirely accurate. They get mad mm-hmm. and they get sad. They get really mad and sad. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. And many people take that anger and sadness and say, screw it. It's all a fraud. I can't believe I gave my life to this. And they spend the rest of their lives trying to put themselves back together. Yeah. And that's legit. And I honor that. And those people are my relatives. I will always claim those people. But that is not the same thing as doing the hard work to unearth how white supremacy has messed up all of us and limited all of our humanity by making us say and do dumb things that ended up costing people their lives. Right? Yeah. I don't necessarily see huge participation in anti-racism by my fellow white folks who, you know, are post-Mormons. That's not a natural association. I don't see that. Yeah. If, if, if all the white ex-Mormons, former Mormons, you know, we're lining up to do the work. We're lining up to get into wherever the Black Lives Matter conversation was and play a supporting role. Then I would be afraid of what they'd say. Hmm. But the fact is that undoing white supremacy is everybody's responsibility and that you can't dodge your responsibility by saying, oh, it's because the church wasn't true and you're a fraud. 
no, no, no. The church is, you know, the church, Mormonism is what it is. It's powerful and beautiful and it's challenging and it has very problematic aspects like any other culture, nation, society, human group, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a false dichotomy that says all or nothing in or out. show up and do the work. And if you don't want to be a part of Mormon life anymore, you know, bless you, like find healing, go your own way, but don't you use your faith crisis to, as a weapon against people who are, who found that they can still want to be in and do the work. Right. Mm -hmm. So feel good. Like doing the work is good for your heart and it leads you it's sweetness. It bears sweet fruit. Like um, this woman named Ruth Wilson Gilmore is this really important geographer who studies prisons for a living. And I sat down with her once in her office and I had just said something stupid. <laughs> like I always do. Like I, I say stupid things every, all the time. One I of those, saying, one of those times where you're like, you see the words coming out of your mouth and you're like, no, put oh, them yeah. back in. Like, because the fact is the more you work in relationship with people, unlike yourself, you're going to say stupid things. It's just going to happen. Unlike you're not the first white person they've heard say a stupid thing. They right. can handle it. Believe right. me. Like it's way better to see a white person saying a stupid thing is trying than someone who's so proud in their ignorance. Hmm. But anyway, so I said something stupid, you know, and, and and she let it go mercifully, but the conversation went along and she said, you know what the opposite of racism is? She said, happiness. Hmm. And this is a badass, like big time scholar, one of the most political hardcore people I know. And I found that so true because the work that comes, when you dig up your stuff and you look at it and it humbles your heart, and you realize how flawed you've been. And then you're able to know new things and understand new things with the richness. It's like it says in the New Testament, like, you know, I once saw things as a child, you know, and now I see, like, that's the whole gambit of Mormonism. It's like, we're better when we know more. We're better when we leave the garden of our ignorance. And we're better in our hearts when we embrace the opposition in all things, including the way we undo ourselves and have undo ourselves. Like, we're better when we know. And knowing things doesn't ruin you. It makes you more like our heavenly parents who comprehend all things, right? Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid of knowing. I mean, there's going to be heck, awkward, terrible, sad moments along the way. Like yeah. I'm sad when I think about the people I love and admired and the prisons of understanding they were in their whole lives because of stupid stuff at church that no one could really call out yet. But the way I show my love is by saying, look, we got to do our work in Mormonism everybody on this planet's got to do their work because I am not okay with waking up every day and seeing what black people have known forever is that black people get killed just for being black all the time. Yeah. Look, just no, for running down the street. Uh, right. Yeah. Look no further than, you know, any headline. Unfortunately, there's more than one story that, you know, we could bring light on as far as that goes, but just, absolutely, just, you know, as recent as this week, um, those, right. those stories, um, it, it's an interesting thing to me because I, I feel like, and tell me what you think, maybe you see it differently in California, but I feel like uh, within the church here in Utah, we want it so badly. We want the church to be <laughs> yeah. a bigger place. We yeah. want to have, you know, uh, our black brothers and sisters and brown brothers and sisters and, you know, every everything, but we just don't know how to do it. Yeah, uh, I think specifically of just a couple of years ago when they had the B1 celebration um, yep. for the 40 years of the uh, ending of the, of the priesthood ban. And it was a massive celebration. And, yep. you know, thousands of people gathered to the conference center and and we were able to celebrate Jesus in non 
you know, Eurocentric, y- Eurocentric ways. ways. And we all went, oh, my gosh. And we were moved to standing on our feet and clapping and tears and, and all of these things. And 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 so I feel like I feel like we're a, we're a, a group of people that really want it and have no idea how to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And, you know, I feel the same way. And I think it's very similar out here. And in many ways, we're like most American Christian denominations. And I count us among the Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Good, because um, we are. Look at the name of the church and logo. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. I still have editors trying to argue with me when I, anyway, it's a long, stupid academic story. But yeah. like, like, any, like any mainstream, and I think we're in the mainstream now, American Christian denomination, Mm -hmm. you know, the exclusion is baked into the institution. From the beginning in the U.S., churches segregated. Churches are the most, some of the most segregated places in American life. You think about it. Black folks shop at white folks, well, not always, but like, I was gonna say black folks shop, shop at white folks grocery stores. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, you know, like there's a Pew study that I cite in the opening pages of the book that talks about what the Martin Luther King, what the Reverend Martin Luther King called the most segregated hour in American life happens on Sunday morning. Mm. And that's backed mm. up time and time again in studies. So why do our churches end up, and not just Mormon churches, sure. all the churches, why sure. do they end up being places where we seek out and reproduce homogeneity? What does it really take to desegregate? Is anybody doing that well? I don't know anybody that's doing that well. Maybe the Catholics have a better you know, chance at it because of but that's also part of an extensive imperialist history of mass conversions in third world countries allied with European colonialism that was devastating to indigenous people. Maybe like some of the really fancy highbrow Protestant churches think they're doing a good job at it. They still look really white on Sunday to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like maybe some of the Bible-based littlest fundamentalist churches, Pentecostals actually have always been uh, less segregated of all the Christian denominations, but like nobody's doing it right. right. Nobody's getting this. And that's because it's not about what song you sing necessarily. That helps, right? It helps. It's not just about what song you sing or what clothing is accepted at church or who the faces are on the pulpit. That matters. Mm -hmm. That matters. But that's not the whole thing. The whole thing is that until it stops being deadly to live as a black person, none of us are getting this right. And that's a heavy lift. I can't remember who it was. Someone important. I can Google it. said, you know, justice is what love looks like in action. Hmm. So yeah, we're ready to love you. We're ready to like eat whatever you want to eat, bring whatever you want to bring to the potluck in the cultural hall, wear whatever you want to wear on Sunday. Are you ready to get out and fight with someone and do the hard work of like, no, no, this needs to change so that every child of color has equal access to healthcare. This needs to change. Like that is faith in action. And that's what none of us are prepared to do because the church has been, we, we weren't raised to be activists in that way. Mm-hmm. We weren't, we were raised not to make trouble. Right. And you got to make trouble to change a world in which it's deadly to be a black person. So, so is that the call then as we find our way through the book? <laughs> like, is that, is that the, you know, in a, in a time and in a place in a world moving forward that, th- that this is the charge? Hey, this is where we come from. This is where we find ourselves at presently. And, and if we want to see a difference, like is, is, is that what we're, is that what you're calling well, out? So I'm just an author and a scholar, right? And um, I remember a few years ago during the 40th 
anniversary, we were trying to figure out how do we make use of this anniversary to like do better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we tried some things and they really didn't work. And I was sitting there one day trying to figure it out. And, you know, a voice in my head said, oh, it's because, you know, just just work on the archive, just work on the archive. And I was, I was like, okay, so I realized that there was a whole story that still needed to be told, contributing to work that's gone ahead of me by people like Paul Reeve and Ronald Coleman and some the great active uh, African-American Mormon uh, LDS writers and thinkers, you know, people like, of course, Sisters in Zion, like they've all done amazing work and there was more work to be done. So, you know, as a scholar, my, my first instinct is to say, if you can read a little bit of the book, not because it's my book, mm-hmm. read any book about white supremacy as a structure and deepen your understanding to, and have a conversation about it with your heart and with one other person. That's huge. That's huge. Because I wish it were as easy as show up and vote, drink canned food. Like I wish the right. actions were clear, but it's like conversion itself. It's a total remake of heart. Hmm. And you have everything, all of us have what we need because this powerful love we have as Mormon people, as LDS church members and the dream of a oneness, that's it. That's the key. We have more reason than anybody else to do this work. Well, that sounded very Mormon centric. We have as good a reason as anyone else, right? Uh, I just, uh, I'm thinking of various parts of my life where, um, where I've really just enjoyed diversity of all kinds in all shapes and the growth that has come from um, being able to experience that and not always being, you know, I mean, so to kind of illustrate this, right? Pre-mission, I was born and raised in Utah. Uh, I think there was uh, one black guy who went to my high school. So that was my extent with, you know, other races. Um, And I used to believe, and this this will show you how ignorant I was, but, you know, in that time, I, I didn't want to take dance classes in high school because I thought it would make me gay. Uh, I go. Yeah. What's that? Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So then I, I go. I serve a mission in Cleveland, Ohio, where, you know, I've shared this before. In the first couple of moments in the airport, I saw more people of more races than I had my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, had various companions from various um, parts of the country who brought different experiences and then quickly was like, no, you know what? You can do whatever. That's not how homosexuality works. And quickly, I, I you know, this expanded m- mind of like, oh, there's, there's all types of people and they're all great and I love all of them. And then the thing that I'm, as we're talking that I'm sort of embarrassed to maybe no, mention this is, is, really good. is that uh, like that, that putting myself in, in situations for growth as I've gotten older have decreased. Yeah. Well, I love that. That's thank you so much for telling your story. Right. But because growth is uncomfortable. Growth is uncomfortable. There's something I want to, I want to find this for you. I, I was reading a book the other day and it has just stuck with me so much. And I, as we kind of wind this out, I, I, I feel like this could be sort of a, um, a byline for this discussion and then also perhaps even at least my present take it as far as the church goes um the saying and i don't know who said it i like to quote things like you do i don't know somebody famous said <laughs> something um the quote is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and i yeah. and i just i don't know for whatever reason it's why yeah. it's why i continue to have these conversations where 
on the face of it, you go, wait, white supremacy and Mormonism, this is going to be, and I just, I, I, I don't think there's another way we can, we can, you know, make heaven on earth or, or be ready to have, you know, our own planets if we want to get real Sacrifice Mormon for a minute. Brings forth the blessings of heaven, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And by the way, it was Cornell West. I just Googled it. Justice is what love looks like in action. I mean, look, the good stuff takes work and I can do hard things, yeah. right? And yeah. it's going to take work. And the thing, one of the problems that we have as Mormon people is we love comfort. Our holiest spaces are extremely quiet, mm. non-argumentative and comfortable. And this stuff is hard and conflict and emotional. And we've learned not to see that as the space where God lives, but God does live in that space. Yeah. God lives. I mean, you know, it was agony crossing the plains, right? Yep. There's every situation that's difficult is also good for us if we let God work with it. Hmm. How can people get your book, Joanna? Oh, it's on the Internet. Yeah. You can find it on the Amazons and you can also go to um, Oxford University Press, which published it, which I'm freaking proud of, of course. But, um, you know, Oxford University Press has its own website. You can get it there. It's about the same price both places. So. Is there an is there an audio book if people like listening to it? You know, my publisher has been under quarantine and we haven't even talked about that yet. But um, no, it's not yet available in audiobook. It is on Kindle. Nice. So people can check it out there. Uh, Absolutely. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. You may remember them from almost a decade ago. You also might not remember them at all. The first question. A lot of living. <laughs> No, you were able to summarize what you've been doing in the last 10 years in, you know, a minute and a half when we started. Uh, the first question is, um, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I do not have a calling within the LDS church. If you could pick one for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Huh, I would be, um, I would be the, uh, Ooh, this is, well, why not? I just wrote a book of Mormon's white supremacy. I would uh, be a blesser of refugees. Okay. All right. I would just stand in line. Anyone who want to come sit down in front of me, I, I would put my hands on their shoulder and say a prayer and, and offer a blessing. I love it. I love it. That's powerful and a whole different conversation that we don't have time to have. <laughs> I would love to have that conversation. We'll have to have you come back. And then this last question, interpret however you will. Um, but the question remains the same. What is your favorite part of your faith? Ooh, um, I love our theology of the preexistence. I love it. I love it. It's um, the best version of the purpose of life I know. Well, uh, I hope that people will check out the book. Um, and by check it out, I don't mean literally go to the library and check it out. Although I'm betting in some places that's what you could do. But buy it for crying out loud. She spent the time to visit with us. The least you can do Aww. is check out her book. It's called Mormonism and White Supremacy. The author, Joanna Brooks. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body. That if you are not healthy enough to listen this week, that you will be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the cultural hall show.